window. That has nothing to do with the movie that we're talking about. We just couldn't <laughs> think of anything. Starry James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, Thelma Ritter, Raymond Byrne, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and I'm the dumbass that just did that named Brian. Uh, I'm Matthew. <laughs> I'm Logan. And uh, so we're back here on Friday, as we promised, um, to catch up because of that technical difficulty with recording our last episode, Rope. Um, so we're here talking about the 1954 classic film by Alfred Hitchcock called Rear Window. And then, um, just side note, we will be back on Monday with our regularly scheduled Monday release. We'll be talking about Psycho. Um, so yeah, we're down on Brendan this time because he is taking finals right now. So he is in the world of hurt right now. So <laughs> just the three of us. But, uh, yeah, welcome back, guys. How, how have you how have you been? Uh, how have you been handled right. this quarantine? Yeah, uh... You know, staying busy. I've uh, been watching a lot of movies. You know, uh, been thinking about exercising. Can't say I've done it, but I've been thinking about it. Um, That's the first yeah. step that counts. <laughs> it's the first step, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I've uh, doing okay. Uh, these podcasts are uh, they're a, a much needed break. Uh, you know, my school year is still going on. Uh, and I loser. Have, I have still quite a while. School. My classes are done this week. So oh, nice. Today is today is May first. I guess while you guys are listening to this, so uh, this is my last day of of classes, and then I have uh, a bunch of other assignments, a, a reading week, and a uh, you know, bunch of finals. But I'm not worrying about that yet. It's it's okay, and uh, I'm here and ready to talk about a good movie. Yeah. Um. So, I don't know about you guys, but I have a little less... I didn't write two 10-page papers on this on this movie, so I have a little less background information, but I have a little bit uh, to talk about. Um, but I think I actually want to save that for going into the film itself. And also, I will tell you this right now. We can talk about this during the conversation, but I bit the bullet, and I watched both remakes of this movie to be prepared oh. to talk about them on this podcast. Thank you. Um... Yeah, so... What a sacrifice. God, One of them was a made-for-TV movie for ABC in 1998 starring Christopher Reeves after right. he had his injury. Um, that was a hell of an experience to watch that on IMDb TV with <clears throat> ads that did not line up with the set commercial breaks that were made for the film. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that as we get going, or maybe at the end of the podcast. I don't know. Um, I'm in a weird mood, so this is just what you're getting today. Um, <laughs> Clearly, by the cold yeah. open, you're yeah, in a so little bit of a weird mood. It's just not, it's not been the best, but you know what? We're going with it. So I'm going to read the plot summary so we can talk about this movie. Recuperating from a broken leg, adventuresome professional photographer L.B. Jeff Jeffries, played by Jimmy Stewart, is confined to a wheelchair in his Chelsea apartment. His rear window looks out to a courtyard in several other apartments. During an intense heat wave... He watches his neighbors who keep their windows open to stay cool. Yes, and Logan is pointing to his background on a Skype call, which is the the view from the window. That's right. He observes a flamboyant dancer he nicknames uh, Miss Torso, a single woman he calls Miss Lonely Hearts, a talented single composer pianist, uh, several married couples, one of them newlyweds, a middle-aged couple with a small dog that likes digging in a flower garden, a female uh, amateur sculptor, and Lars Thorwall, Thorwald, played by uh, Burr, a traveling jewelry salesman with a bedridden wife. 
Jeff's sophisticated, beautiful socialite girlfriend, Lisa Fremont, played by Grace Kelly, visits him regularly as uh, does the insurance company nurse, Stella, played by Thelma Ritter. Stella thinks Jeff should, sh- uh, should settle down and marry Lisa, but Jeff is reluctant due to their uh, disparate... God, I know how to spell dis- say disparate. I don't know why I couldn't say that. Due to their disparate lifestyles. God, it's just not going well. One night during a thunderstorm, <laughs> Jeff hears a woman scream, don't. And then the sound of breaking glass. Later, he is awakened by thunder and observes Thorwald leaving his apartment, carrying a suitcase in the pouring rain. Thorwald makes repeated late-night trips, carrying the case. The next morning, Jeff notices that Thorwald's wife is gone, and then sees Thorwald clean up a large knife and a handsaw. Later, Thorwald uh, has moving men haul away a huge trunk he tied with a rope. Call back to rope. Uh, Jeff shares all this with Lisa and Stella who both believe he has an overactive imagination. Jeff becomes convinced that Thorwald has murdered his wife. Jeff calls his friend Tom Doyle, played by Wendell Corey, a a New York City police detective, and asks to investigate Thorwald. Doyle finds nothing suspicious. Apparently, Mrs. Thorwald is upstate and picked up uh, the trunk herself. Soon after, the neighborhood's dog is found dead with its neck broken. The distraught owner yells across the courtyard, wailing, about her neighbor's uh, callous disregard. Everyone runs to their windows to see what is happening, except for Thorwald, whose cigar is seen glowing as he sits quietly in his dark apartment. Certain Thorwald killed the dog. Jeff has Lisa slip uh, an accust- accusatory note under his door so he can observe Thorwald's reaction uh, reading it. Are you okay, Luke? Yeah, I'm doing great. <laughs> What's wrong? Are you just laughing at me and not struggling through this plot summary? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> great. Exactly- as a pre... As a pretext to get Thorwald out of his apartment, Jeff then telephones him and arranges a meeting at a bar. He believes Thorwald buried something incriminating in the courtyard flower bed and killed the dog to stop it digging there. When Thorwald leaves, Lisa and Stella dig up the flowers but find nothing. Much to to Jeff's amazement and admiration, Lisa climbs up the fire escape to Thorwald's apartment and clamors uh, in through an open window. When Thorwald returns and confronts Lisa, Jeff calls the police who arrive in time, arresting her when Thorwald indicates that she, uh, she broke in. Jeff sees Lisa's hand behind her back pointing to her finger with Mrs. Thorwald's wedding ring on it. Thorwald also sees this and realizing that she is signaling someone spots Jeff across the courtyard. Jeff phones Doyle and leaves an urgent message while Stella goes to bail Lisa out of jail. When his phone rings, Jeff assumes it's Doyle and blurts out that the suspect has left the apartment. <clears throat> when no one Answers, Jeff realizes that Thorwald himself called and is uh, coming to confront him. When Thorwald enters, Jeff repeatedly sets off his camera flashbulbs, temporarily blinding him. Thorwald grabs Jeff and pushes him out the window as Jeff, hanging on, yells for help. Police enter the apartment as Jeff falls. Officers on the ground run over to break his fall. Thorwald confesses to the police soon afterward. A few days later, the heat has lifted and Jeff rests peacefully in his wheelchair now with casts on both of his legs. The lonely neighbor is chatting with a pianist in his apartment. The dancer's boyfriend returns home from the army. The couple whose dog was killed have a new puppy, and the newlyweds are bickering. Lisa reclines on the daybed in Jeff's apartment, wearing jeans, <clears throat> reading a book titled Beyond the Himalaya, the High Himalayas. As soon as Jeff falls asleep, she happily uh, opens her bizarre magazine. That's B-A-A-Z-A-R, not B-I-Z-A-R-R-E. <laughs> um, so uh, that's Rear Window, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Do so you guys uh, just want to go into, like, First impressions with this movie, any background that you had with it? Uh, go ahead, Matt. Um, yeah, I can't remember the first time I saw it. Uh, it was sometime in high school. Um, but So this was my third time watching it because I'd watched it again since then. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I really enjoyed this movie. It's grown on me the more I watched it. I remember the first time I saw it, um, I never quite jived with where the story went. Um, but, uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it this time. Um, I, I think it's just, just such a fun and well-made movie. It just, all these puzzle pieces just fit together so well. And it's so, uh, so fun to watch just a very creative movie with a very interesting set with a very uh a lot of intricate characters with their own distinct personalities and once again i think i think the wit and i think the dialogue here is super snappy and back and forth and the combination of grace kelly and jimmy stewart is just so much fun to watch on screen yeah i agree with all of that um so this was the first time that i'd watched it um had basically I mean, I had a little bit of background because this movie is referenced just in pop culture all the time. Um, but yeah, had had never actually seen it. And um, it, it really kept me guessing. Um, it's kind of interesting. I, I sort of know what you mean about like the first viewing uh, is not exactly the easiest to like figure out where it's going. Um, so I had some issues with that, but uh, I think it's the kind of thing that I would want to watch again sort of knowing what's important, knowing what's not important and, um, you know, getting to pay attention, getting to pay more attention to the things that are important and kind of learning not to pay as much attention to the things that aren't. But, um, yeah, that's just kind of a, a first impression. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what you think is not important in the story. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, I saw this, I've seen this film got three times now in an academic setting and I've watched it a couple times beyond that because I love it so much um it's this is like if you ever go to film school if you're you know still in high school and middle school listening to this um hey what's up um you're gonna watch this movie if you go to film school like it's someone's gonna show this to you in a class but um yeah this is a this is a movie i really love and it's one of hitchcock's best i think and it's uh it's just kind of a masterwork of his that you know next week uh we're gonna be talking or next on monday we're gonna be talking about psycho and that's my favorite Hitchcock, just to give you a little spoiler for that. But this is this is up there, and I think for many reasons that we'll get into in this podcast, I think this is easily one of his best films. Um, so yeah, let's I guess let's get started with the plot. And immediately, uh, let's talk about the opening credits here, where the curtains rise um, from his windows, and we get introduced to this huge set and it's very much in the way that uh, it starts in a way that tells you that this movie is about voyeurism aka about watching movies um so this this movie jumps you puts you right there right away this movie is about watching movies yeah i love the way this movie starts um it feels almost theatrical in the way it begins with these curtains rising it kind of feels like the uh you know this the 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 curtains on the stage are being uh, slid away, and we're starting to. It feels like a very intense experience to start a movie. I, I love that, and I love that the music that's going in the beginning is super bopping. Um, oh I yeah, like how then it, super bopping. I'm pretty sure it's Bernstein. This music is it. It's a Bernstein. Yeah, interesting. I that think was, okay. At least he's he he does some stuff on the soundtrack. I know. I, I was looking at it, but uh, it's kind of hard to tell what music in here is is who but it's all very good but yeah this it says music by franz waxman by the way oh okay i'm pretty sure this opening bit is bernstein though. Okay. okay i was just saying that's what it says on the credits yeah, yeah um yeah and i love the way then it fades into uh the music that's coming out of the radio and the pianist player's room um I, I think it's a lovely beginning absolutely and it's um and, and like you said we are 
immediately introduced to the concept, we are inside a room, we are going to be confined to this room, and we are looking out of a window. And I love the visual storytelling that goes on here in the first minute and a half without any dialogue needed. I kind of wanted to talk right off the bat about the difference between uh, this movie and Rope, which we just talked about last week. But basically, Rope feels like... I mean, okay, both movies, okay, they're kind of confined to one room. Um, sure. But with Rope, you it's like kind of the continuous shot makes you feel like you're there. It always focuses exactly on, uh, you know, the focal point of the scene on what you should be looking at. Um, which is very innovative in that way. And this is kind of a different way. Like you're looking at a lot of different things around this whole huge set. Um, like it's like kind of the same thing, but kind of different. I found it really interesting. And I think these are both, uh, awesome techniques that Hitchcock uses very well in very different ways. Yeah, I gotta agree with you with on that. I've never thought of the two as the same piece, but yeah, you're right. The one just exercises editing, more or less, and kind of gives you that more channel-hopping type feeling television that you can just, you know, pick what station you want to watch in terms of, you know, looking through the different windows. But yeah, it's very, very similar styles. And maybe it's just because we're reviewing these back-to-back and, you know, not even subsequent weeks, but just uh, subsequent weeks but it like literally in the same week yeah yeah it, it's interesting you know as we've said to see uh TikTok, uh tiktok my god hitchcock uh <laughs> <laughs> i thought you were gonna make a statement about like modern Start social dancing. media and how it's all about uh, like voyeurism but no. oh man yeah uh well okay it was interesting to see hitchcock this um, film is a precursor to tiktok yes I'll tell you that, that is what i'm trying to say that's actually what this whole rear window about. walked so that tiktok could run <laughs> exactly what I'm here. so that real yeah so tiktok could fly um i i love seeing him play around with technology and i think this uh being confined to a space is definitely um a lot um i don't know it, it, it fits into the movie a little bit better than the 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 no cut aspect of rope even though i really did like it i think this this uh meshes together with the storyline a lot better yeah i can see that and i love absolutely love after you know after the credits we get that very first shot where just panning around the uh the courtyard right and i have to say first of all this set is incredible i can give you a little background here um hitch didn't like no one really knew at paramount how to make this movie because it needed such a huge huge set and they didn't have you know a set that big and someone at paramount was just like cut the floor out of our one set there's a basement a storage basement below and that's what they did they literally cut the floor out of the basement so jeffrey's apartment is on the second level it's really on the first level and everything else below it is actually the basement that oh, they cut wow. out. And this whole set, this, this set is incredible. Like this is probably one of the best sets I've ever seen. Yeah, no, it's insane. I remember the first time that I saw the movie, I, I think one of the reasons why I didn't completely jive with the movie is that the entire time I was going, are, are these miniatures? Like, is this some sort of like, it felt like the opening to a Mr. Rogers episode, right? Where you're going like through yeah. the tiny town. Cause that's what it feels like. And it's, I mean, I haven't really seen something like this in, in any sort of movie where the character, the actors are so far away and we're kind of just viewing them from the side that they almost look like tiny little dolls. Like it's, I don't know. I just think it's so interesting. Yeah. My grandparents have this Christmas decoration. That's like a house and, and it has like a bunch of windows on the front and you plug it in and it does like the night before Christmas story. Um, 
with like and it like it'll like light up different windows when like different parts of the story happen it'll like show you things happening inside the house that's what i felt like i was watching here at the beginning where it's like it's going from room to room i was like oh okay now they're showing me like uh what this lady's up to now they're showing me the piano guy like it was it's very cool it's it's an interesting way to watch it and at the same time then like once uh uh once jeff starts talking about like the ethics of you know is it ethical to watch people like for his own entertainment like you're kind of in that spot with him like is it like i've been i've been watching these people too like is is this not okay tell me i watch movies yeah i watch movies tell me if tell me if i'm ethically right to watch movies jimmy stewart you know (laughs) yeah exactly um but no yeah this 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 set is incredible i completely agree with you i love the way that it kind of plays with perspective and because really we we kind of go out of the the into the courtyard a little bit but we kind of just slink our way in we see everything that we're going to be eventually viewing and then we land on lb jeffries played by james stewart who is back from rope and who we reviewed also with vertigo so it's we've hit three of the four jimmy stewart hitchcock movies we're missing the man who knew too much which is also a good movie um Maybe someday we'll do that and complete the quadrilogy of Jimmy Stewart Hitchcock films. <laughs> um, but so we land on him. He's all sweating because it's like 92 degrees in his apartment. Uh, dude, doesn't this make you love AC? I'm just saying. Oh, uh, yes. It's like, hat loser. Back before <laughs> AC was invented. Had to just sweat in the summer. Um, and also love... when, when cameras were still like two feet long. Exactly. Yeah. I know, right? Um but th- there were so many things and there was like hey give me that thing i don't even know what to call it with the look through like and he pressed a button to see different photos oh yeah, yeah. Like side to side or the yeah, flash I bulb like, i laughed so yeah. hard when he said oh my flash god bulb. dude i was like yeah. this movie is this movie is very 1954 i'm very oh, excited yes. to talk about it but after we see jeffries i love how this movie it completely visually sets up exactly everything you need to know to start the movie you get all of the people out in the courtyard you kind of get an idea of who they are you see jeff you see his legs broken you say on his cast here lies the broken bones of lb jeffries you know you see it's 92 degrees you pan over you see the broken camera you see all the pictures that he's taken you know that he's an action photographer or whatever you want to call him you see the negative of grace kelly and then you see the uh the magazine where she's a model um and that's you presumably his girlfriend because he has it in in a frame everything of the setup of the movie is told visually in the first like 45 to 60 seconds of this movie and that's why i feel like i'm really gonna enjoy watching it again knowing what happens and knowing how all of those things are actually relevant it's so satisfying it's it's so concise and it just tells you everything you need to know and those things are then touched on by characters later on but never in an expositional sort of way it's just an a okay we understand what that is so they're gonna comment on how oh the sergeant and uh jimmy stewart were in the war together because we saw the photo of them and i love how he does it i think it's i think it's great and it creates this very seamless approach to it so that then when the maid walks in it's like okay this is just a continuation of the story okay and we're in it immediately and just the music overall the music in this Mm -hmm. film is so well done like the the use Hitchcock's use of diegetic music is like it's so satisfying because the like in Rope we had the piano player in this film we have the piano player and we have like the opera singer who who is doing like scales sometimes um I don't know I just I love the way it it doesn't it never distracts from the scene it just it's always like a perfect underscore 
for the scene that's going on uh, and doesn't feel like manufactured at all. It feels very natural. Yeah, so all the music in this movie is diegetic, right? Except yeah. for, like, in the very beginning when we get the uh, that, very, that very, like, snappy little tune because then it, it transitions into coming out of the radio. And I love how he does that because the music... And real, all... real quick, we yeah. should describe for people who might not know what diegetic means. Yes, we've talked about this a good bit on on back in style because uh, yeah. it's a sorry sorry to interrupt your point matt but i just no, yeah, felt yeah, that, that might, a, might be necessary this is a good explain. thing to explain yeah yeah so a, a diegetic music would be music that's coming from uh the world of the film and then non-diegetic music would be music that only us the audience could hear yeah um <clears throat> so jimmy stewart can hear diegetic music we cannot uh, yes. and us non-diegetic jimmy stewart would not be able to hear right yeah, and Hitchcock makes that known by having having the audio seem a little bit far away, making it sound a little bit, uh, uh, the quality being a little bit lower because it's coming out of a radio. And I love how he does that because the music in this movie directly corresponds to what we, and in turn Jimmy Stewart, is seeing. If Miss Lonely Heart's being sad, we get sad music, right? And I think in any other music, in, in any other movie, if this music was just being played non-diegetically, that would be so heavy-handed. It would just be beating us over the head, like, okay, this person is sad, here's sad music. But because they use it in the movie like that, you, you don't even notice. And it's just like, kind of in the back of your head, you start to feel sad because you hear it back there. And it's because it's been going on the entire movie. It just, it fits in so perfectly. I love I that love theme. That theme that, that goes throughout the film that the pianist is working on, that eventually comes full circle at the end, is so beautiful. I love that piece. Yeah. Okay, so let's get – we've kind of been dancing around talking about this movie a little bit. Uh, let's talk about it. So we get introduced to L.B. Jeffries, played by James Stewart, who I have to say, we said that he was miscast in Rope. He is the epitome of perfect casting in this film. I love James Stewart in this role, and I think it's probably – I mean, I haven't seen a ton of James Stewart movies. I'm currently doing a retrospective just myself of a ton of old movies, so I will be seeing a lot more James Stewart soon. Uh, but I, I love – James Stewart and I love this performance. Uh, it's it as I said in Rope, and it's even more true here. It is the anchor of the film. Yeah, couldn't imagine anyone else doing it. Yeah, and Hitchcock seems. I mean, I haven't seen The Man Who Knew Too Much, the Jimmy Stewart version, so I can't speak to that. But Hitchcock seems very interested in uh, taking Jimmy Stewart's uh, uh, star power and kind of twisting that in his movies. Because in Vertigo, you know, he plays as a very this very sick, sadistic man. Um, in Rope, he plays this very like pessimistic uh, man whose views might have led to the murder of David. And in this movie, we are, you know, taking away the majority of his power, which is this man can't walk, and we're confining him to a wheelchair. And now I love how he does that, and while still giving Jimmy Stewart like that trademark charm, he he makes him a bit of a curmudgeon as well. He kind of seems like an old guy when you play him against Grace Kelly because you know he complains about how she wouldn't be able to stand it in the mountains. And I, I think he's I agree. I think he's perfectly cast. He does yeah. seem very what, old. Oh, in sorry, this go movie. ahead. Yeah, I was I was just gonna say he seems very old in this movie. Like he he's got gray hair. I don't know how old he was. He was forty six. Okay, I would. I just did that math in my brain. He was 46. No, that would make sense. Because um, he graduated school, I think, 31 or 32. Um, okay. But he, yeah, I don't know. Like, his gray hair, which I don't think is real, I'm sure that was Ooh, and, like... Yeah, he was 20 years older than Grace Kelly at this point. Yeah. Wow. Okay. She was 25. It's interesting. I mean, I guess, like, that's kind of Hollywood. 
back then. Oh yeah, like, like, yeah, old movies back then. Yeah, there's definitely. nothing. There's nothing quite wrong with that, really. Yeah. With a mid forties dating someone in the mid twenties, like I mean, it's it's a little weird, but there's not. That's nothing that you would say is like wrong. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, but no, yeah. So as yeah, as you said, James Stewart does normally like Hitchcock does normally subvert uh Stewart's star power. But actually, what's interesting about the film you haven't seen. Uh, the man who knew too much is basically Jimmy Stewart being okay. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Um, he's just this kind of Swiss army knife of a man. That's the professor, but also a detective. And at one point an action star. And yeah, it's, it's, it's Jimmy Stewart being Jimmy Stewart. Um, it's a good movie. You should watch it. But so we get introduced after we get introduced to Jeffries, um, who, who is great, but we should say actually before I, sorry, before I move on, we should talk about Jeffries a little bit. He is this, almost action war photographer that is just this adrenaline junkie and um is now cooped up in this apartment and you know stuck there and all he has to do is look out his window which i don't know if there's ever been a time that we could relate as a society to james stewart in rear window than right now during this quarantine because (laughs) i don't know about you guys when he's like i'm just stuck here doing this doing nothing i was like yep yeah yeah, that's me yeah Mm -hmm. i felt that that's very fitting that. yes i i mean maybe we could have made a cold open out of that <laughs> instead of what oh we geez did. you're right <laughs> it's a good idea honestly most ideas are better than what we did so <laughs> what hard, i did hard to imagine a worse idea than, yeah, than what you did and we what we all signed off on so <laughs> well i was just doing that because i was having anxiety before we started it, and you were like do that it's a cold open yeah and i was like all right <laughs> bet say i won't um but no, I, I, I love this character because he he both embodies something that we all do, which is voyeurism um, by, you know, we, we look at other people when they're crossing the street. You know, we watch movies. Everyone in life looks at other people and tries to, you know, tell what's happening with them. It's just a natural human instinct. Um, and film and TV is proof of that. And on top of that, he's just this kind of curmudgeonly middle-aged man that's just kind of a pain in the ass, but also like really fun to watch. What do you guys think of Jeffries as a character beyond the performance? Yeah, he's he he's very charming, but then at the same time, he's also just a complete dick at times. And you just oh kinda, yeah, you just kind of want to smack him. Like he he's he's just very rude to Grace Kelly at times. But but then you know like he's very charming. He he's he's hilarious. Um, yeah, no, no, I I definitely do like his character. I, I think they do a good job of balancing those two parts of him out. Yeah, I mean, he's hilarious, he's charming. The dialogue, as we've already said, is fantastic. Um, Whippersnapper dialogue, to use <laughs> 1950s <laughs> terms. Exactly, yeah. Couldn't, Thank I, you. Couldn't have put You're it better welcome. myself. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It kind of keeps you guessing the whole time. Like, I was... I was trying to figure out, like, the entire time, like, is he actually crazy? Like, did, um, uh, what's his name? The Lars, whatever. What's Oh, Thorwald. Thorwald. Yeah, Lars uh, Thorwald, yeah. I was like, did Thorwald actually do anything? Like, is this, is, is Jeff just, like, crazy and he's making stuff up? And, like, I don't, I don't know. I really, there were quite a few things in this movie that really just threw me off and the whole thing just kept me guessing, which was fun. Yeah, yeah and no, see what's interesting. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. I was just gonna say that's kind of how I felt the first time watching it. When the movie ended, I was like, "What?" I I thought like I thought he was gonna be wrong. I thought this murder actually didn't take place, and I was like, "I I think I would have preferred that." And I even kind of felt that a bit of my second viewing. But I don't know. Watching it the third time, it um I I, I really enjoyed it, and I thought the conclusion worked perfectly. Yeah. Well, there's a moment yeah. later where uh 
uh, Detective Doyle is in the is like talking to Jeff in in his apartment, and he's okay. Well, I don't need to say in the apartment because the entire movie is in the apartment. But uh, he's talking he's talking to Jeff, and he's like, uh, Thorwald is no more of a murderer than I am. And I was like, Yeah, that was okay. a weird line. I was like, Okay, that's basically telling us that like Doyle is the real killer, right? Like <laughs> Doyle did something wrong. Thorwald did. Doyle killed his wife too. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, and the fact that Doyle was like trying so hard to get Jeffries to like stop looking into it, I don't know. It it felt like it was like really leading me towards that, but like it was also really leading me towards other things too. I don't know. It it was a fun, it was a fun way to watch the movie because you're like, is he just going crazy and making stuff up, or is he right? Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like I kind of went way off topic, but. That's no, 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 no. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't know. I don't remember what my first viewing experience of this was. It was back in high school. It was for a class in high school. But I I don't remember because I had to watch it over different class periods because we didn't have a long enough class periods to watch this all in one sitting. So, like, I don't remember my first viewing in terms of how I felt. But what's interesting about what you guys are saying about whether or not he was crazy or not is is that they're both remakes play on that a lot more than this film I think does hmm. especially the 1998 remake with Christopher Reeve they don't even explicitly say that he killed his wife they imply it heavily but there there are very many things in in the remake uh, for ABC that meant to throw you off and then the Shia LaBeouf remake called Disturbia which um is actually a good movie well I can talk uh, Honestly, like, it's 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 good. You should watch it. It's peak 2007. Like, <laughs> instead of all this diegetic music, there's just Nickelback all throughout that movie. Or, like, that kind of style of music. <laughs> it's just everywhere. Um, that sounds right. Yeah. No, and, and um, But they do play on that, because there's a couple different times where you're like, oh, he killed someone. And then it's like, oh, he didn't kill someone. It's not his wife, either. It's, it's not... The, the Christopher Reeve remake is very much a one-to-one type thing. Disturbia is a li- is slightly different. It's much more of a different take. Um, no, yeah, I think I think that that's interesting that when people are going to tell this story, I think it shows that a lot of people have that common experience of, like, is he actually correct in his assumptions? And before that we get there, I just kind of want to talk about each of these characters individually real quick. Miss Torso, Miss Lonely Hearts, the newlyweds, and I think I think those are the and the pianist. I think are the main ones to talk about, um, because each of them, Jeffries is stuck here and he's at this crossroads in his life, as as pointed out by the brilliant Thelma Ritter, Ritter as Stella, who I love in this movie. Yeah, fantastic. Um, she is always she's talking to him. She's like, you know, you got to marry Lisa. This is before Lisa even shows up, kind of giving us this whole background on the Lisa character. And what I love about Torso, Lonely Hearts the pianist and the newlyweds, it kind of shows every different aspect of Jeffrey's and Lisa's relationship because torso, as we get later is kind of Lisa as, um, he sees her. Did, did I just blow your mind a little bit, Logan? A little bit. Yeah. Okay, good. I mean, this all, this all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And you know what? I'm proud of the fact that I've gone through three classes of that and no one's mentioned that in those three classes. And I thought of that myself, just saying, I'm a little patting myself. on That's pretty great. I, um, I would pat I would pat you on the back if we were not doing this over Skype. Thank we're you, cool thank you very much. <laughs> um, but Torso represents, you know, Lisa. As she talks about later, she's like, oh, you know, she basically says that she is Miss Torso. She says that directly. Miss Lonely Hearts is going to be Jeffrey's in ten years if he doesn't marry 
uh, Lisa, basically. The newlyweds is if they get married and they're unhappy. And then the pianist is like, oh, I'm just going to toil in my work and not think about that. And then there's also the happy old married couple, even though they spat at each other, you know, up in the corner with the dog, with the dead dog. So, like, each of them kind of represents different things. Oh, wait, is that the film? Is that the couple with the mattress in the rain? Yes. That's hilarious. Yeah, and, like, each of these represent where Jeff could go. And I think that's just a very interesting, like, what, what proves how great and how great the script is and this concept by Hitchcock to make this a film is that he knew exactly how to play with each group that he is looking at. Oh, and the very obvious one is he gets married and he kills her. Um, (laughs) Represented by Tharwald. So it's like it shows every different possible outcome with Lisa right there in his face. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Yeah, and I love the way they they cut to all those different characters after like a key line of dialogue between Grace Kelly and Jimmy Stewart. You know, it's like... Grace Kelly is hurt by one of Jimmy Stewart's comments, and they cut to Miss Lonely Hearts being sad by herself. I, I love how they do that. I'm really going to have to pay more attention to that, of when the people are shown uh, mm. versus like the dialogue that's going on. Um, Logan's going to rewatch this movie tonight. I literally, uh, probably not tonight, but I probably will rewatch it very soon. Uh, no, but yeah, and all these, what I love about all these characters is that you get, they're, they're very distinct, they're very much archetypes, but they're very distinct, and the one that I like the most, whose story I think comes out the most, besides the obvious Thorwalds, um, is Miss Torso and Miss Lonely Hearts, I think those are the two best of the characters, the most, the ones that we learn the most about, um, Torso because it plays on a stereotype, and then subverts it completely, yeah. and Lonely Hearts because it gives you a really heartwarming story by the end, um, so did any of these uh neighbors really jump out to you guys specifically yeah i think that miss lonely hearts uh i think i think it's really shows the power of whatever the actress's name is but even when viewed from that far away you're right we never get a close-up we never get like any direct contact with her with a camera but uh, you can still feel so much emotion coming out of it and when we get that first scene and we see her uh kind of acting out the routines that she would do as if a man was coming over to have dinner with her. It's heartbreaking. Oh, it's uh, depressing. It's, it's so depressing. So sad. I, um, I could not understand what was going on in that scene. So is that what she was doing? She was like, oh yeah, acting like because she was. I wasn't sure if she knew that someone wasn't there, or like if no, she, yeah, <laughs> she was miming a date. Okay, because I I was thinking when I first watched it, I was thinking like she actually thought that there was someone there, and like she she she's had, crazy, like, schizophrenic, yeah. Uh, or something like that, and uh, I was like, okay, is this gonna like focus on her and her like going nuts or something? But yeah, then it didn't. I think what tells you that that's not the case is that she tries to start doing it, and then she starts breaking down and crying and drinking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and and also what tells you that is that later she actually does have that date, you know, and then it goes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. But yes. yeah, oh, so I think that's that's, that's what it's. Yeah, yeah. and Miss Torso, I do like the way they. They subvert her character at the end. I mean, the majority of her characters just does just feel like Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, just, you know, just... Being uh, a creep? Yes, being a creep because of what we know about Hitchcock. Um, so, like, the subverting of the expectations of her character doesn't, like, completely erase all the other stuff for me. But um, I do like that they... See, it kind of does. Different... I feel like it's Hitchcock commenting on himself. Really? I, I feel like... I don't know... What... I was reading stuff about the actress and and about and she, she said that she had an enjoyable experience with Hitchcock, but she said that he would just constantly just like make dirty jokes about her and like yeah. 
It's just, you know, it's just kind of weird. And it's the yeah, only... He was a sleazebag. I mean, there's no denying that. The only close-up that we get... This is interesting. The only close-up that we get in the movie where it kind of, like, breaks out of the apartment is of Miss Torso. When the dog is killed, there's this random shot of a close-up of Miss Torso. It's so... It, I think it's really There's random. a couple random close-ups in that sequence. And I, I... Yeah, I might as well say this now. Those shots almost break the film. It's in weird. a weird way. It it completely throws you out because in I, I've heard many people talk about this. Like when I was talking about this in, in film class, they showed us the scene and they were like, "What is wrong with this scene?" And everyone's like, "They pull you out of the apartment." And I don't know why it's there. It feels unnecessary. And yeah, you're right. It almost breaks the illusion of this film because you're like, "Oh, why am I all of a sudden seeing these people's faces?" Like I'm close. Apparently Hitchcock like really really liked that actress and wanted her to be in his other films and and she was like a dancer she was only twenty one at the time and he asked her to like be an Alfred Hitchcock present but she didn't want to so he wanted to give her like her close up um, and, yeah but and, it wasn't just her though it was weird it was a are lot there of other ones in that scene yeah Lonely Hearts gets that one too really okay I didn't yeah. pick up on that but yeah yeah I hadn't noticed that at all I'm sure I would if I were paying more attention but um, <laughs> yeah I like. Uh, I, I do like both of these characters, although I felt uh, very attached to the piano player, partially probably because I am a piano player. I was going to say, because you are him. And I, I related pretty hard when he was just like throwing his papers around the room and he was like, Fuck, this is shit. I'm, I'm shit. And, uh, you know, that's, that's <laughs> I think every artist feels that way at some point. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's relatable. And then also like just the fact that he's so connected to every scene, like he's always there. His music is always there. Um, yeah. In most scenes, even uh, with the brilliantly, brilliantly acted, brilliantly shot Miss um, Lonely Heart scene uh, later with the basically assault that we see happen on screen um, sure. yeah. with the the Mona Lisa song playing that um, that the piano player is playing and his his uh, party guests are singing. Um, he's just like his his music is constantly there and. I think for that reason, he's he's one of the most interesting. Also, the fact that he basically like saves Mrs. Lonely Heart's life at the end, mm-hmm. like that is a yeah. that is a With pretty music. touching storyline. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I I love these neighbors and I love the world that Hitchcock gives you with so little, and I think that's really the power of the opening of this film. Um, and much like the film itself, we have taken a long time just talking <laughs> about the setup of this movie. Um. So let's get to it. Um, after that little intro of all the characters and the situation with Lisa, oh, we get one of the most famous shots probably in cinema history when Lisa, played by the great Grace Kelly, comes and basically just comes and sits directly in front of the camera, which is we are Jeffrey's. The camera is Jeffrey's at that point, and it's just a close up of Grace Kelly's face in the moonlight. And, um, yeah, it's Grace Kelly. She's great. She's beautiful. I don't really know what else to say. Um, but that shot is just iconic. It is breathtaking. Every single time I watch it, 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 it just blows my mind because it's, it's the silence and the mm-hmm. serenity of the moment. Cause there's no music going on. It's eerily quiet because, uh, Jeffrey is sleeping and we hear like footsteps. We know someone's in the room and then we just cut to her and she slowly comes into focus. And she just has this sort of aura about her the entire movie where you're just uh, us and Jeffrey and the camera by extension. We're all just drawn to her. It's just, I, I just think she's amazing in this movie. God, I love Grace Kelly. I have a question and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if there's 
a good answer, but there's... Does she arrive to this building on a helicopter? No. Or... Uh, okay, <laughs> then what's the helicopter? I don't know. I've always wondered that. It's just a shot... It's just a very funny-looking shot of a helicopter. Like, I laughed pretty hard when I saw this helicopter shot. Well, and it, it almost makes it seem like the helicopter is watching Jeffrey because yeah. he's on the phone with his, like, the editor editor of the newspaper, and he's like, yeah, I'm so bored in here, I, and it's like, I didn't, like the cops I didn't are, like, remember, spying on him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I didn't remember when in the movie the helicopter actually showed up. I wasn't sure if it was, like, It was like, the before. first shot. It was, like, the one of the first shots of the film. It's so weird. It's yeah, so it's, weird. It's weird, and it looks... I mean, I'm sure, like, it looks very good at the time, and, like, it, it's pretty a pretty innovative way to shoot it. Uh, it, it looked like... It looked like he kind of, like, just shot a helicopter landing and then, like, overlaid the top of the building on top of it. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that's definitely what they did. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, I mean, it, it looks kind of funny today, but I'm sure it's a very innovative technique. But, yeah, I didn't understand why that was there. But, yeah, um, yeah going back to uh, going back to Grace Kelly, going back to these characters, um, I totally agree. I, I think she's great, and I think, um, I think in regards to the silence, you know, for how good the music in this movie is, Hitchcock can do a lot with the silence. And for how good the visuals are in this movie, Hitchcock can do a lot with uh, what you can't see rather than what you can. Sure. And sometimes that's yeah. even more effective. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to get into Grace Kelly a little bit, she, um, you know, so there's a lot that is talked about, rightfully so, about the way that Hitchcock treated his blondes. For some reason, Grace Kelly was his golden child. He loved Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly loved him. Him and Hitchcock's wife and partner, uh, production partner, would always go and hang out with Grace. There was always there was these stories that all they were like always together, even when they weren't making films. So that's nice that there was a, a pure relationship, at least somewhere. <laughs> There's at least one blonde well. that he didn't that he didn't completely harass. No, yeah, no, he he harassed her zero, which is kind of amazing i don't know it's record weird. low for him <laughs> i know um but there was it was even to the point where like for next week's podcast or, or next monday's podcast we're reviewing psycho so i just watched hitchcock last night and there was a point in that film which is about the making of psycho where he's like why can't i have grace kelly in this movie and she's like and his wife's like because she's now a princess you cannot have her she's not acting anymore you can't have her and he's like well i want grace kelly back <laughs> um but I mean, it's 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 understandable because she is she is such a great charismatic actress, and she had such a short career in Hollywood. And she made what three or four movies with Hitchcock in that time. Um, she won an Academy Award in those like six years that she acted, and then she became a princess. I don't know. Grace Kelly is just like a super interesting person. As always, you have to mention, or we have to mention, how they always die horribly because she died horribly, um, in the eighties in a horrible car accident. Um, just to you know because we always have to bring that up now yeah. um, reviewing these old movies. <laughs> we um, always have to talk about how someone dies. Dies horribly. Not just dies, dies yeah, horribly. The worst the worst death we have to we have to pick out the the worst death suffered by an actor in this movie and then Easily Grace Kelly. She was so she was the prince she was married to the prince of uh what not Morocco. Maybe it was Morocco. I don't know. Uh something um Milan maybe? I don't know. But she was driving on a cliff, right? And there wasn't a railing type thing to stop you from going over the cliff. And, like, something happened and she, like, down the cliff and died. Very depressing. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I always have to bring up these really depressing stories. And welcome to CTP. <laughs> welcome to the Cinema Talk Podcast, where in the second hour we just talk about how horrible things, that, horrible ways that these actors died. Yep. Um, but, no, yeah, I, was, I know that I was going to get to a point here with the Grace Kelly thing. Um, next week we all talk about how Hitchcock basically destroyed Vera Miles' career and wanted hated Vera Miles for a very 
weird and horrible reason that we'll talk about next week that is so weirdly contrasted with Grace Kelly. And I think it's 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 significant to talk about the way that Hitchcock treated these people, not only because he treated them horribly, but also because it shows that he loves Grace Kelly in this movie because Lisa Fremont is the, like, ideal woman in, like, society's mind in the 50s, and Jeff just can't, just doesn't want her. He's like, eh, she's all right. And it's like, are you kidding me, Jimmy? She is, like, perfect. She is literally, like, in a factory-made perfect woman for you. Yeah, um, and, and I... L- I love how we get those aspects of the character revealed through the dialogue right after she's introduced. Because, I mean, we, we, we find out she's a fashion model. She's been running around all day, doing all these dinners, all, all these meetings. And, and I love at one point she talks about the dress she's wearing and how beautiful it is and what designer it was made by. And then Jimmy, you know, the uh, logical person asks, oh, where was it exported from? Who made it? What country? And I love how we get those two differences between them. <laughs> the, the, the pragmatic Jimmy and then just the very free-flowing, fun-loving Grace. Yeah, the dialogue is just wonderful throughout the whole movie. It's just, like, it always serves a purpose, but it's uh, it's not always, like, a super obvious purpose, and it just always keeps the movie flowing so well. Yeah, they're back and forth throughout this film, especially in this first 20 minutes or so yeah. when she brings the restaurant to him. It's like it's like this this woman is literally like like he even says that she's perfect, like she can't do anything wrong. And I think that's almost a fault with the movie. Like she they, they give her tiny moments of humanity when there she's serving up the lobster. Right. And they're talking about uh, Miss Torso. And she's like, oh, no, it's not what you think. You know, it's kind of like trying to break that facade a little bit that's built up um but even to the point where like jimmy stewart or jeffries is like outright mean to her at some points for being just herself and being a good person where it you like jeff but he's he's such a dick to her in this beginning that i it, it, it's a tiny bit of a turnoff to the James uh, Jeffrey's character. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, and it, even later on, uh, after they get into the argument, I, I think Jimmy basically says, like, hey, like, this is not going to work out. And she's like, all right, then. I guess I'll just leave. And he's like, wait, wait, wait. But can we just keep things status quo? Like, can you, can you keep bringing me dinner while I'm in my wheelchair? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Can you keep, like, coming over and, like, saying nice things to me and being so perfect? But, like, just be that. Like, don't be anymore because you're too perfect. I don't want to marry you. Yeah, he, he is a complete dick to her at times. Yeah, I agree. That's <laughs> good assessment of that. Yeah, and I think uh, a a good thing to to get to before we get to the murder, which we should note, there's this is a there's a half hour of movie before the woman yells "Don't." Yeah, there's a full half hour. Like I checked the sign, there is a full half hour of the film before we get to the murder. Um, where it kind of gets to the Jeffries character a little bit, and I've had this debate in film school, so we're gonna have that debate here. Um, well, I know I didn't get to have the debate because the professor cut me off because I disagree with her. Don't like her. <laughs> not gonna not gonna name names. Um, not that this podcast gets listened to by anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so his dick don't work. Let's just get there. Um, it's covered by the cast. They they are making out at one point, and he's like, "Hey, I, we can't, you know." I'll as break you know. the cast. Yeah, <laughs> freaking crack it wide open. Oh my God. If you were around, what, what, <laughs> what line he, are you does he say that for? no he no, doesn't say, say that but no no but the line that you were saying like when oh, they're, they're making out yeah they're laying she's laying on his lap after they have dinner and i think it's right before they have that argument actually 
and she's like well we'll just you know this will just have to do or something like that where where they're making it. i was like obviously i'm incapacitated we can't do anything we can't go to the bedroom or whatever you know yeah. jimmy stewart or um and yeah so that gets to the point where um one of the arguments of this film is that this film is about sexual impotence by the james stewart character because he has this beautiful woman sitting in front of him and um he can't do anything about it because his you know cast is covering his you know woodpecker <laughs> and, jesus um, christ <laughs> oh. oh boy i hate myself a little bit but um why because you just called james know. stewart's penis his woodpecker <laughs> <laughs> no no reason to hate yeah. yourself at all <laughs> um but no yeah i don't know what do you guys i firmly disagree with that stance that this film is about sexual impotence but i don't know how do you guys feel about that as a reading of the film yeah i mean it's certainly it's certainly not an expressly stated dick don't work it's more of an implied dick don't work but yeah um i don't know i i read his distraction in those scenes more as just like he's just distracted by like what's going on like he's he's disturbed by what he's seen like from other people's private lives and so he's distracted i don't i don't think it's necessarily like sexual impotence or or repression or anything like that like yeah i just think that scene serves to show that he is focused on other things and as and i think that says a lot about his character that like he is he's a photographer and like a reporter kind of he's i mean it's not really a a reporter but like he's also a veteran but like is the character i must have missed that yeah yeah he's a world war ii vet okay um which yeah so it's very interesting i think that like he his he's so focused on what's going on through these windows that he's that he's watching everyone through um that he i I think mainly it just goes to show that like he's very invested in that because we can see like this beautiful woman uh trying to basically seduce him and he's just like i wonder what happened with mrs thorwald and it's like seriously dude but i think i don't think that goes to show any kind of other message other than just uh within this movie he's he's very focused on what's going on outside maybe unhealthily so i mean that's kind of a kind of a statement on like uh today's you know social media and and how everything's got to be like publicized to an extreme degree and so maybe like being focused on that is unhealthy and can take away from like being in the moment i don't know that's sort of an off-topic thought but uh yeah i I disagree with the assertion that it's about his sexuality in any way. Yeah, I certainly think that's a way to read the movie. Um, I don't think it's, uh, you know, like you said, the one that is expressed the most. Um, because, I mean, they are basically stripping him of, uh, I, I guess you could, like, view it as, like, these traditional male qualities, right? Like, he can't do, like, his job, which is, like, his manly going out, venturing, taking photographs. He's he's kept to a wheelchair. Um, his dick don't work. <laughs> Uh, and late, later on in the movie, I mean, he has his, his girlfriend is out doing the, the dangerous things. Like what, what he would like to do, going like investigating, seeing what's in the pile, going to the apartment, his girlfriend, the his servant, the maid essentially is doing all those things. Um, so I think that's a way to read it. But, um, you know, I, I mean, that's like traditionally what's done in like academia. It's like exploring these very like abstract different routes that would not come to like anyone's mind like it would not be the first thing that comes to anyone's mind but i don't know it it illuminates some things yeah yeah someone even argued in that class that we were having that discussion that because the line 
a line said by Grace Kelly and implies that he's gay. I'm like, you're just, you're, did you stretch before that reach? Like, come on. Um, there's, there is a Hitchcock movie about gay people. It's called Rope. Go watch it. Yeah. It's not Rear Window. Um, but yeah, so that I, my argument that got cut off and was not able to, um, voice to the class was that this movie is not about sexual impotence. It is about an adrenaline junkie being cooped up. Um, I think that's very obvious by the text. I don't think it, that is like the most obvious thing. Like he's an adrenaline junkie. He's looking out the window. He wants to see everything that's going on. He wants to be out there in the Himalayas taking pictures. He wants to be there when there's a revolution taking pictures. He doesn't want to be confined to that space. And he is almost like stuck quote unquote with Lisa, who is just happy going to these dinners and, you know, being a New York socialite where she, he's not interested in her because of, she is this New York socialite, not because um, he is sexually impotent or whatever, because it shows you that because once she becomes that, he is super attracted to her and is like, oh my God, like there's that shot when she's like getting into the apartment that his eyes like go wide. You can basically hear the thunk of his, <laughs> you know, <laughs> his woodpecker. <laughs> his woodpecker. <laughs> James Stewart, uh, if you're listening to this from the from the great beyond, I'm sorry that we're talking so much on this podcast about how your dick don't work. It's nothing personal. I love you, but uh... no. But I'm saying I, my argument is that it does work once yeah. she becomes quote unquote the woman he wants her to be. Yeah, I I can understand that. Yeah, I mean, even though at the end of the movie he's left in two casts, so it's uh, kind of a <laughs> yeah. double difficulty. <laughs> um, yeah, but we'll talk about that, but he's faced away from the window then at that point. He is sure. faced inward to her mm-hmm. instead of outwards towards the quote-unquote excitement. Yeah, um, I, 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 I think it's it's interesting to talk about this movie then in relation to Alfred Hitchcock because this is very much so, like, if you expand it, like a commentary on, on making movies because Hitchcock, I mean, self-described and people describe him as a sort of peeping Tom. He was very interested in other people's lives and that's essentially what being a filmmaker is, right? You you observe other people, you're making movies about them, you're instructing actors. Um, so... And knowing that even Hitchcock himself said that he had he was a very sexually repressed child and and teenager and young adult. Um, it's interesting then that maybe Jimmy's, his dick don't work. I I think so. That, that Jimmy Stewart is kind of that stand-in, and that I mean, Jimmy Stewart is is a photographer, is kind of like a filmmaker, like Alfred Hitchcock. I think that's when you can bring it into it. But yeah, no, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that's a very apt. Uh... A point to make. By the way, so, wait, to get off topic a little bit, I'm pretty proud okay. of myself because I did notice Hitchcock's cameo this time. Yes, it was good job. Like several seconds long, and not just like he's driving a bus or whatever. But yeah, he he even kind of mugs toward the camera, like, eh? He, you see me? He looks a lot like Major Briggs in this scene. I gotta say, but uh, he kind of does. Yeah. So true. Yeah, yeah. Go listen to Back in Style. Yes. Um. But no, yeah, so we've, we've just, much like the movie, we've gone a long time without actually <laughs> talking about the plot of this movie. So about a half an hour in, Jeff is sleepy, he's sleeping in his little chair, window open, because it's hot, and he hears uh, a woman scream, don't, which we haven't really talked about the Thorwalds, but she is an invalid, um, he is very, you know, kind of tired of her, and he suspects that something bad's happening. And then he hears this screaming, uh, nothing else. He f- kind of falls back to sleep, and then the next morning he sees um, him what taking like a, a saw away, a butcher's knife. I think he even well, sees him goes out in the middle of the night. 
Yeah. Um, don't don't yeah. we first see though, like after the scream, and then it's later on in the night. Uh, just maybe later, but then we see not not Jimmy Stewart. We see uh, Thorvald walk out w- with a woman. Is that, yes. is that in this scene? Because it I, is. E- even even my third time watching this, I'm still kind of confused, right? So the woman that he was walking out with there, was that his wife or was that a woman that he was having an affair with? Did he already kill his wife? Woman he was having an affair with. Okay, he had already killed his wife. She was in the suitcase. He had scattered her remains in the, and he was going to do it in the river as well. Okay, in the river. I yeah. see. But yeah, that seems interesting because I think that's the only instance of us, the audience, uh, seeing something that Jimmy Stewart does not. It I, is. I and that was a very deliberate choice by Hitchcock. But does that detail change the plot that much? I think it 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 sows it it is the moment that we are supposed to sow doubt in Jeffries, because we have seen this. We know that someone walked out of that apartment, and Jeffries going down this rabbit hole. It kind of it it is meant to throw off the audience from just being like, oh yeah, Jeffries is just you know he he knows everything and they he killed her and move on, you know. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because we don't find out that it's a, an affair till later on. Okay, I see. And that's what I think is just so clever about this movie. Like, you, you don't really know what to believe. Like, everything... Another thing that I remembered that kind of throws you off of the off of the obvious path of just Jeffries is right uh, is when they, they go to dig stuff up by the flower bed and they're digging and digging and they just don't find anything, which then gets explained yeah. later. But uh, it's, it's just so clever the way they do it. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he calls up his his friend, who's a detective. And again, as we talked about, Doyle is kind of an ass. He's a prick, mm-hmm. you know. He doesn't really do anything. Again, with police in a Hitchcock movie doing jack shit, um, until it's directly thrown in front of their faces. Um, and he asks him to investigate. And Doyle, we get some great scenes with Doyle. I love that scene when. So we didn't talk about it, but Lisa is like, "Oh, I'm gonna stay overnight." She brings her overnight bag to try to prove to him, you know, I can do this, you know adventure stuff she because she packed a little suitcase and brought it over and she's in this gorgeous uh pink nightgown and she's drinking brand getting brandy ready for them and doyle just walks in and i love this interaction between the three of them it is one of my favorite scenes in the movie when when jeffries is like careful now like i just i love this scene so much that you just see the shadow of grace kelly from the kitchen and, and all you need is just Doyle just gives Jimmy Stewart that look, and it, it's just a perfect look. You know exactly what is conveyed in that look, and 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 it makes sense knowing that they were friends and they have been in the war together, which he which he notes. Yeah, I I think this is great, and I I do I do really like Doyle's character because he he comes in, he's extremely skeptical, and then later on he comes in, and it seems at first like he's got big details on the case but then he's even harder on his stance than before you know he is no more of a murderer than i and then he switches at the end and you're completely correct this uh continues with hitchcock's theme of uh the police being inept stupid just not all that integral to solving the uh the conclusion of the mystery yeah i love doyle's uh chemistry with jeffries and yeah overall just good character I don't think there's really a bad character. I like watching all of these characters, even the ones that we only get to see, you know, through windows. Yeah, no, I, here's, here's a question that I just kind of want to dive deep into, because we've, we've talked about it on surface a little bit and how it relates to the remakes, but Doyle is the first person here. The Doyle scene mixed with seeing that woman come out of the apartment. Did you guys believe Jeffries the entire way? Did you buy that he was correct the entire time? Did you ever doubt that he was right? 
Uh, the first time that I saw the movie, I thought for sure that like, uh, uh, the the neighbor had not killed his wife. Um, and I thought for sure this was going to turn out to be a sort of, uh, uh, the wrong man. It, it, you know, it's proven to be innocent in the end. Reverse, like reverse yeah, of yeah. That, that is like a very common uh, Hitchcock Hitchcock storyline, right? The wrong man. Um, so so I was surprised to see where it turned out. And the entire time I was like, oh, you know, is this some um, uh, quarantine induced reverie? Like like is none of this happening? Is this a dream? It's hot outside. And that was where mine was going the entire time. But like I said, third viewing, I completely bought it, and I really enjoyed the conclusion. Yeah, completely agree. So, so Logan, you thought that he didn't do the do the murder? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I think part of the fun of it is that you don't really know, and there's pretty the the clues pretty much alternate like one direction or another. Uh, there's a lot that leads you to believe that Jeffries is right. There's a lot that might lead you to believe that he's wrong. But um, I. I think that's part of the fun of it, like not really knowing. And then of course it's a nice ending that, uh, he was right. And, uh, I mean, although at the same time, like Grace Kelly says, like you're rooting for him to be right. But also like at the same time, if he's right, then that means that this guy killed his wife and isn't it better for the wife not to be dead? You know, yeah. it's kind of weird. Um, but again, it's kind of putting us in the same seat as, uh, Jeffrey's. You know, when I just thought of, I think the reason why I never doubted that he was right was because I think I saw Disturbia before I saw this movie. I think I saw Disturbia on FX when I was like 14. Interesting. So, mm. you know, in that in that version, it's a 17-year-old Shia LaBeouf on house arrest instead of a 45-year-old James Stewart. But it's an, it's again, it's a decent movie. It, I'm going to keep saying you could you should watch Disturbia. It's a good movie. Um, but I think that's why I never doubted it because I'd seen that movie and like, yeah, you, yeah, he was a killer. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. You got it right. Um, so I think that's why I never doubted it, but I was very interested while, while watching it this time. I was like, I wanted to talk to you guys and see whether or not this film actually successfully threw you off the trail of Jeffrey's being correct. And it sounds like Matt, the film for you did, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely, yeah, did. So, it definitely did for me, too. Great. I, I, I'm glad that the film is effective that yeah. way because not knowing that he was going to be the killer, uh, I've just always known, I think, that he actually killed his wife. I don't know. I guess because of Disturbia. Um, that I, I've never had that experience and can never quite say, but having it from both of you guys, I, I'm glad that the suspense is there. Um, so after some of these scenes, we get the dog dying. And I think it's... While those shots kind of almost break the movie, I do love the emotion from the wife and kind of how it, 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 it does unintentionally kind of comment on today. You know, I feel like a lot of these messages are still relevant today of saying, you don't care about us. You just like looking in our windows and doing things to our dogs and stuff like that. I just, I, I love this scene. I don't know. For me, it, it always felt a little bit sudden and out of place not just the the random insert close-ups but but the speech she gives although it is very impassioned i don't know it just i don't know for me it, it always takes me out of it a bit for some reason it just it just feels weird and like not entirely genuine i don't know why i agree i think it's mostly because the focus point or the the focal point is always basically within the apartment um whether it's you know it's on jeffrey's it's on uh stella or uh or lisa or um, Doyle, but 
Uh, yeah, and then it it just it's completely focused on focusing on like the emotional beat of this one woman who, in the rest of the plot, isn't super significant. I mean, her dog is significant, but um, like focusing on her emotion for so long, I agree that it's a little weird. But I mean, it, it's very well done, uh, and I think yeah, I, I wasn't really taken out of it as much just because I wasn't really paying attention to like the cameras but uh yeah i i can see how that's an issue but i do think it's a pretty good scene yeah i think it's maybe because i think the thing that she's addressing there and you know everybody's just shut in where nobody's looking out for each other i think that's addressed subtly enough in, in the rest of the movie and i think this might have been a little bit too heavy-handed to have it addressed um and taken us out of the context like that yeah, I get what you guys are saying with that, but this scene also spins the plot forward by showing that Thorwald was the only one that doesn't come to the window, so thus he was the one that killed the dog. I love that how that apartment is just blacked out except for the cigar, and I think it's just a very effective visual point. And also this is when, um, actually I don't know if, if this is before or after Grace Kelly is just fully in on the investigation. Um, is this the moment? I'm I'm sorry I forgot. It's been like five days since I watched it. I think I think this might have been the turning point, right? She sees that she does. She sees that the dog is dead and that he's not coming out, and it's like, oh, tell tell me more. I think yeah. yeah but then there's also a very strange scene that's also a, a turning point where she's talking about like this is what a woman would do. Like a woman would never leave her, you know, whatever at home. Oh, the jewelry. A woman yeah. would never like, yeah, a woman would never like leave without a ring. A woman would never leave her handbag there. And like, that's kind of what convinces her to join the investigation. I think for, from my recollection, I think that's sort of her turning point in a way. I think you're right. Which is weird to me. Cause of course, like these antiquated, like gender ideas from, from the 1950s, they're going to pop up in Hitchcock's movies. We've seen that happen before. Yeah, there's no there's no getting around it. Right. But now in this movie it kind of drives the plot, which is weird and a little bit of an issue for me. I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't know if it's an issue because she feels so secure in herself and she likes doing what she's doing and you know, being a model and she doesn't apologize for it really. Um until we get to the even when we get to the end when she's like, "Okay, I'm changing." I'm going to do this with you, you know, be this adventurous person. Yeah. She still pulls out the bizarre magazine after she's done. So I take her character more as just being, again, a rare, rarely, but an empowered woman in a Hitchcock film. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, I don't know. To me, it just seems like, yes, we have the, these, these, like, uh, th- this type of dialogue that happens about, about gender in these movies. And, um, you know, in the in the whippersnapper dialogue, as you called it. Um, yes. Uh, but it's it feels weird for that to be like her evidence almost like that's taken as fact. It's taken as evidence. Like, I sure. don't know. It, that that's just a little weird to me. I, I read that that was an addition that uh, Grace Kelly actually added to the to the script. Oh, that cool. that was something that like sh- that she mentioned that like well no a female this this should be one of the pieces of evidence that a woman would always take her bag with her which i think is kind of interesting interesting well yeah okay i'm i get i'm i'm sort of more on board with that then if that was brought by the actress uh and it's not just like a dude writing in the 1950s being like this is what women think right <laughs> yeah I, I think that does make a little bit more sense now um yeah yeah so after after she fully goes in it's like okay yeah you're right um, 
Jeff writes out a note to give to Thorwald, and Lisa goes and puts it under Thorwald's door uh, to get a reaction out of him. And this is the moment that I was talking about where his eyes just go wide, and he's like, oh my god, look at her doing this adventurous thing, because she kind of becomes a, almost a surrogate for him to be able to start acting out these things. Um, and it's it's a great piece of uh, suspense, too, when he runs, you know, runs over to the door, grabs the note, reads it, and then tries to quickly find her, but can't. Yeah, that's a very suspenseful moment, um, which another very suspenseful moment is uh, later when she's actually in his apartment, which I think is oh, yeah. some of the best camera work of the film. It's, I mean, it's because Jimmy Stewart and us, we are trapped and... Uh, typically, you know, we, we would be up close on this action. We would, but, but we're completely, we have no power here. Um, we, we don't even know exactly everything that's going on in the scene because we just kind of see them from afar. It, it, it's very interesting. And I love Jimmy Stewart just kind of writhing around in his chair and just like, no, no, don't, don't, no, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, it feels. Yeah. And, and that, that is the movie viewing experience, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it feels very powerless. Yep. Yeah, he has he can do nothing, and this this scene where he, she goes over with the note very much is a precursor to later when she goes into the apartment. Um, but I love I I just want to talk about real quick. I love the dialogue between Stella and Jeffries while he's doing this because I love how much Stella gets into it with them. Mm-hmm. And when like that one time when she's serving him breakfast and she's like, I wonder how he cut up the body, and he's like, he can't eat the the food then. I just, like, Stella's little quips into this film really keeps this film playful, I think, and keeps the film comedic, and I, I love Thelma Ritter, Ritter in this film. Yeah, she's great, and even earlier, when she, she she gives the stories about how, you know, I knew why the stock market would crash, because of, I can smell trouble, and it's kind of this foreshadowing what's going to happen later on, while also being very comical, it's great. Yeah, f- no, for sure. Um, so yeah, after, after they get this note, he's like, what do you want? He tells him to meet him at a bar mm-hmm. and he believes that he buried something in the, in the flower bed where the dog was digging up and that's why he killed the dog. And after he gets him to leave his house or his apartment, they go and they, they dig up the flowers and there's nothing. Um, did this, was this a moment for you guys too, where you were like, okay, what is happening? Like, did this really throw you guys off? Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's a big misdirect. And I think it's super well done. Yeah, I agree. Cool, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> um, we kind of already talked about uh, a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so right after that then is when she goes up to the to the apartment. And like you said, Logan, probably the most... This and the very end of the film is the two most suspenseful moments of the film. And it really shows where Alfred Hitchcock was the master of suspense. He knew exactly how to play with the audience, how to how to play them like a f- violin, I think is what he said. He knows how to play the audience like a violin. And he does that with exact precision in this scene. It's so interesting, the fact that she is... Like, when she goes behind the... Like, basically like the section of wall where we can't see. Like, it's so yeah. suspenseful. He uses what we can't see as like just as well as he uses uh, what we can see. And like, I think sometimes that type of suspense is so effective. I, I absolutely love it. There's a real sense of danger here because when, especially when Thorbot turns off the lights and, and we don't know what is going to happen. Is he, is he going to beat her up? Is she go- Is he going to kill her? Yeah. I was very, very worried about, you know, I was scared. What is going to happen to her? Absolutely. And there's also a sense of 
that's when the guilt starts to come to Jimmy Stewart and to us because he's like, why did I do this? Why did I let her go over? Yeah. She could die and it could be my fault. Yeah. And then it's it's the whole consequences of it. Like, hey, this is what happens. Why are you peering into other people's lives? Bad stuff is going to start to happen. Is this ethical? Yeah. Yeah, that, that line of this is private stuff that you're looking into kind of it, – it's it's the movie punching back at you when you're watching it basically. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I always find it interesting though. Like, I don't know, the way they describe it – I guess this is just like a very 1940s or 1950s thing of, you know, like you can get arrested if you do this by looking into other people's windows and like the uh, peeping Tom and you can get sent to prison. Like, I don't know. Just the way they talk about it just feels like very old and always. Yeah, now people just openly post just way too much on their Instagram stories. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) People open their windows and like, hey, look at me instead of, hey, don't look through my window. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, but yeah, so she 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 gets caught by Thorwald after he just isn't paying attention. And again, that's on James Stewart. He just he fucks up. He's not paying attention properly. And um. Yeah, she she gets into an altercation, which, as you said, she runs and hides and using that strip of wall where we can't see just we don't know what's going on. We feel as helpless as Jimmy Stewart. And like so much of this movie places you in Jimmy Stewart's uh, little wheelchair sitting by that window. And I love the moment. I think it's probably one of my favorite shots of the film when the police arrive in time. She's talking to the police. Thorwald's explaining that she broke into his apartment. And she just holds that ring behind her back and just starts pointing to it. And there's that pan up right to Thorwald's face looking down and seeing it and looking directly at us, looking at us peeping through the camera. Love it. That is such a powerful moment. That stare. That that just – it is is terrifying because all this time, you know – they, they don't know without we're looking. It, it's in secret. We're back in the shadows. And then he just looks right at you. And it's always just like makes my heart stop. And we should mention that while this is going on, I believe this, this is when Mrs. Lonely Hearts is, is planning to kill herself, correct? Yes. She's got the pills yes. laid down. So there's these two moments of a very real world danger of stakes. And it's there's tension because he's calling the police. And initially it's for Mrs. Lonely Hearts. But then there's assault going on upstairs. And he's like, I got two things going on. I don't know how to manage it. I'm stuck in a wheelchair. It's fantastic. Yeah, the the two things going on at once that really works to the stories, um, to to the to the benefit of the story, uh, and the su- the sense of suspense that we have. And it isolates Jeffries, right? Yeah. Because he sends Stella out because he has to get Lisa out of jail, and it leaves him all on his own, knowing that the killer is coming from for him, basically. And um, there's no piano music to save you you know, for Jeffries with like Miss Lonely Hearts. There's nothing to save you. And I love then the rest of the film. Again, you feel so, so helpless when you know this murderer is coming after you for watching him kill his wife and for egging him on. And I love what this last scene does with shadows and sound design. Um, The sound design of the uh, foot, foot, I don't know. No, it's not footprints or footsteps. Foot, it? Footsteps. Footsteps. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, coming up to his apartment. Today in and then Cinema Talk history, Ryan Floyd forgot the word for footsteps. Uh, it's not been a great day. Um, but then also the use of shadows mm-hmm. once Thorwald comes into the apartment. And I just think, once again, this is another example of Hitchcock being a master of the craft. I, I, I want to ask you guys, because even on my third viewing of this, um, I felt this. Do you feel that 
even you know even after seeing all these things even after you know uh grace kelly being in the apartment and him and the Thorwald almost beating her up. Do you still feel like this ending is a bit ambiguous when when he's in the apartment and and you know Jimmy Stewart is in the chair and Mister Thorwald all, all he says is like what do you want you know like I, I have a lot of money what's going on because he never like I I don't think he ever openly says like I'm gonna hurt you or like something like like directly menacing. So even on my third viewing, I almost felt like maybe we could have gotten like a clear indicator at this moment of like okay this dude killed his wife. Like I would have maybe liked a moment of pure menace because like watching it now him grabbing him and, and the whole you know the whole flashbulb thing it's very goofy all you know all really? that it is oh I, I it's silly it's silly <laughs> like oh, i love it and him falling out the window it's all very silly i like it i just think it's i don't know i think i, I might have appreciated one line of dialogue that like showed this man is menacing yeah i can agree with that um it is kind of a silly scene it it works and i love the Love the visuals, love the sound design, love the the fight choreography of like this scuffle. Um but yeah, I, I do get what you mean. I gotta disagree with you on this one. I I think it's very clear at this point by the menacing way he shoots it, um the shadows covering Thorwald's face and then saying, What do you want? I have a lot of money, and then trying to throw him out the window. Uh I think very much clears it up that you know, he was, Jeffries was right in his assumptions. And also, I mean, very moments later, he's like, yeah, go check the East River after he falls out of the, mm-hmm. um, falls out of the window. So it's very clear that Jeffries was right. I don't, I, and I love the scene. I don't find it goofy. I think it's an amazing way for Jeffries to use his, um, his passion, but also like his tools around him, um, to stop this, you know, at least to at least slow down this, quote-unquote monster coming after him you know yeah i think it's in the amount of times that he does it because he uses four bulbs sure and four times in a row the man is like oh i can't i can't take one step more <laughs> yeah just close your eyes and run at yeah, he, him like yeah. he's not moving yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. um what i found interesting about him being in this like totally dark room and like not responding like jeffries does not respond to thorwald's dialogue at first and i was in my head i was thinking like did Jeffries like die of shock or something like that? Is it like some explanation like that? And like, he's sitting dead in the chair and he can't respond. And like, we think he's going <laughs> to yeah, fight back, yeah. but he doesn't. And like, I don't know. There was some kind of, there's that weird thought sort of went through my head. And I was like, what if he just like died? What if he like had a heart attack or something? That would big suck. Wouldn't it? That would, it would big suck. That'd be a depressing end to the movie. And like, if he just yeah, and like he never realizes his body out the window. And like he never realizes that he's like, I don't know that that he was right all along. He never figures it out. Like I don't know. No, yeah, that would almost be like a vertigo esque depressing end. That's what I was thinking yeah. about. Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, this is basically the end of the film. I just we just yeah. basically have to I... talk about the last sequence, which perfectly ties up every other like plot line of the neighbors. Yeah, no, I just really quick want to talk about how I love I love the suspense in the moment when they're scuffling and Lisa and Doyle get to the other the, to the Thorwald's apartment and we have to like you know that Jimmy Stewart only has one leg, but you're like, dude, just hold on for like twenty seconds so that people can get down there and catch yeah. you. You know, and then and then they do, I mean only to break his legs again, but like that's between that and death, I'll take the broken legs personally. Um so it, it, it adds that extra layer of suspense that, you know, help is right there. You just have to hold on for, like, ten seconds. And and he does. 
And yeah, the rear uh, projection shot of him falling doesn't look great <sighs> anymore. But um, I think it's still a very effective way that that is, minus those two close-ups, we, we finally leave the apartment with him and crash down on the, the bottom. And I, I, um, I like the moment with Doyle and with uh, Lisa all standing around and Stella having that fun line about, oh, I wouldn't want to know. And then Doyle's like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. You adrenaline <laughs> junkie, yeah. Yeah, but it's no. a very quick rack, quick uh, wrap up to the movie, but I think it does it very well because, like Logan said, this last shot, the visual storytelling. Okay, we see his leg is another cast. Like Floyd said, he's pointed away from the window, and we see the choice of clothing. Grace Kelly is in like this. She's not in like a dress now. It's like these jeans and this like worker looking <laughs> red shirt, and then she picks up the different magazine. Yeah, so I... it, it's a it's a. So bow on the end, but it's, yeah. I paused this movie like five minutes from the end, not realizing that it was five minutes from the end. And I was like, what, like, is this like, how much is left in this? And then I was like, cause it's before Thorwald even like gets to the apartment. And I was like, yeah. this is so suspenseful. Like how much is left? And then I was like five minutes. Yeah. Like this is going to be a super quick turnaround. And then it was, but like. <laughs> It's fine. Like it, he wraps everything up about like, like just as quickly as he has to. Um, he he takes like about the right amount of time. I think I I don't have really many complaints with the ending. No, yeah, I think this also comes back to the time period which the film was made. This was very commonplace for films in this time. Films just wrapped up. They didn't have a falling action. It was like climax. Okay, little piece of uh, what ha- what's happening now and bye. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really think any of it, anything of it because that was just the style of the time. But, um, I think it does say a lot about the relationship. You know, Jeff is pointed away from the window. She's in these different clothes and yes, they're they're She's changing for him a little bit, how she's reading this book and she's going to go with him. It seems, and they're going to be happy and together, but she's not losing herself at the same time because of the magazine. And that's why I say that it's not a complete, you know, overtly um misogynist text i don't think because she still has that agency even after she changes and and it seems like it's it doesn't feel like a change to me that is like gross if you know what i'm saying it feels like a change that like she decided that yeah she wants to do this she can do this she got a taste for for it through this experience it wasn't like she just upright and changed it's no grease kind of found out that she liked it yeah no it's not where she just completely gives up any sense of personality and just like because she wants the guy but, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, because because they give Grace Kelly agency throughout the film. You know, previously we saw her like doing the things that in, that Jimmy Stewart would typically be doing. You know, doing the adventuring and the investigating herself. Yeah, and liking it. Yeah, and it's not like mm-hmm. she gets really into it. So it's not like she's just like, oh, I don't want to do this, and then she gets forced into it, and she's like, oh, okay, I guess I want to stay with this forty-five-year-old man for some reason. <laughs> you know, you mm-hmm. understand it a little more yeah, for sure. So. uh so yeah, so there's any, is there anything else you guys want to talk about about Rear Window from 1954? I don't believe so. All right, yeah, so I we'll think, do the uh, final thoughts. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, um, uh, just echoing everybody's statements. I mean, this is a fantastic movie. It's one of those movies that's so satisfying to watch because you're watching someone who is so in command of his craft. Uh, Hitchcock himself even stated that the filmmaking of this movie was just so smooth it was so nice this was him with i think he said all his batteries charged at his best because everything fits together perfectly uh the cat the actor's chemistry is all there uh there's never he manages to rack it up so much suspense so much tension from us being confined in one room without it ever feeling bored uh this film is endlessly creative i i would 
I would love, um, you know, to, to see this, the set that, and how big it was built. Because um, I, I like apparently like just Hitchcock, all the actors had earpieces. Then he would just give them directions because they were so far away. And, you know, an actual window is that far away. And it's mind boggling to think of that. Um, I, I think it's a lovely movie. It's got all the classic murder investigating tropes. It keeps you intrigued. Uh, it's one that I think is really has a higher uh, rewatchability factor because you can constantly go back and look for different clues. Uh, so yeah, I think this is a, I think this is an A for me. Um, yeah. Let me be honest. This is a creepy movie from a very creepy <laughs> director. Um, but that said, I think the finished product is a film that is very interesting, very thought-provoking, uh, it's effective and culturally, I think it's very lasting. Uh, it's very relevant today with the the things that we've talked about. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I have some co- sort of tiny, tiny issues with it. But um, uh, again, with with Hitchcock, it always seems to be that over the course of these podcasts, I I come to appreciate the movies a little bit more. Um, I was thinking about an A minus. I think I'm I'm gonna give this one an A, which I'm I'm pretty sure is the same as what I gave Rope. Um, I think I really think that uh, this is an A movie. I will have to rewatch it and try to pick up on um, some more stuff. But uh, yeah, God, just the the filmmaking acumen that that Hitchcock very clearly has here uh, is on full display. I, I I love what you said. Full batteries charged. Um, and uh, yeah, it's an A movie for me. Yeah, I'm gonna be very interested to see what you think of Psycho. I, I'm excited. It's it's a very very different movie than anything we've seen before from him. And what I think is really interesting about you know Psycho, I, I I've said a couple times on these shows that Psycho is my favorite Hitchcock. It's one of my favorite movies. Period. So you know what my grade's going to be for that movie. Um, I think that this is kind of the quintessential Hitchcock though. I feel like if you are showing someone a Hitchcock movie to be like, this is what Hitchcock was about. I think you show them Rear Window. Um, it has everything in the filmmaking craft that you want to see from a master that you, that you're showing someone their first work you were showing. It is the epitome of him playing with the audience in terms of suspense. It is the epitome of him using star actors to get his, hit his movies sold with Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, two of the biggest stars ever. Um, and, and it, it shows, you know, his work with, sets it shows his work with sound it shows his work with cinematography and having turning novel ideas like gimmicks almost of just being in looking out a window the entire movie into how effectively he can use that and i think that all the performances obviously top notch uh thelma ritter is hysterical james stewart is probably the best he's ever been in his career maybe i don't know i haven't seen mr smith goes to washington apparently he's pretty good in that um grace kelly is just phenomenal um, yeah, this, the set is just brilliant. We didn't even talk about it, how the, how they lit this set is incredible. You should go and look it up. I love when it, like the dusk setting, uh, for the set where it's just like golden hour almost like it just, the set is gorgeous. Um, everything about this movie works. I don't have a single complaint about this film except for the two shots that pull us out of the apartment. And I don't think that's enough for me to lower it from an A plus to an A. This is an all timer film. It's getting an A plus from me. Um, I literally, the only thing I would change from this film is those two, two close-ups. That's it. That's all I would change. Um, 
no question this is an all-timer. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. This is an A+. Like you said about rewatch value, I've seen this thing almost as much as I've seen Rope, probably, and I had to do research papers on Rope. I just watched this movie for fun. And I like this movie enough that the crappy remake from 2007, quote-unquote crappy remake from 2007, would still get a B-plus from me, starring Shia LaBeouf. Um, <laughs> the story is just that good. That you, it's, it's really hard to screw this up. Um, and even a made-for-TV movie, like the 1998 remake of Rear Window, would still probably get, like, a C for me. Like, it is that high quality that an ABC made-for-TV remake of it is still solid, you know? Um, starring Superman. But I, starring Superman after he had his horrible accident. Another poor, what, what's up with us and injuries? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not no, going to talk, a, that's a, we're not going to talk on this episode about the very prominent figure that we uh, mentioned may or may not be dead right now oh yes we won't talk about that we talked about certain world leader that certain person Um, certain man yeah so going into psycho we're going into psycho on monday let's talk about our histories with the film because obviously i had said this is this was a very seminal we usually do this Um, during the actual episode at the beginning of psycho (laughs) yeah i just want to preface just give a little teaser for psycho um so do you guys, I don't know, how do you, how are, you, are you guys excited to go into Psycho? I'm super next? excited. I, I have no experience, but I'm really excited to get to the movie that I've heard kind of created the whole horror genre. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've seen it once before, but that was a very long time ago. So I'm excited to see how it uh, holds up now upon second viewing. And there's so much to talk about with that film. I'm so excited. It's going to be a long-ass podcast. I'm just going to talk about every single thing I want to with that movie because eh, it's our podcast. Um. So speaking of our podcast, let's talk about the other podcasts on our network. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> um, maybe we have uh, Stop Wait What is our comedy podcast. It's a it's an improv comedy advice show. Um, that's a lot of fun. We're we're still trying to do some of those um, over uh, we're, you know doing them remotely uh, while we are all uh in quarantine uh we also have back in style which is our twin peaks podcast which actually all three of us um have been on um and we're we're working our way through season two we're reviewing every episode of twin peaks and uh we'll never spoil anything for you that's past the episode that we're actually talking about so uh if you are uh if you're a new listener if you i don't know what i'm saying if you want to start watching the show twin peaks uh this is a great kind of follow along podcast or if you're an old fan there's still uh there's still a lot for you to um relive relive exactly yeah so our the other podcast on our feed um we also have a small one called the cinema talk movie journal which we don't have any specific times you know most of these shows are either monday wednesday friday shows cinema talk movie journal we just kind of plop out whenever that's where me and matt do our top 20s we are very soon in the next probably month or so going to be doing our top 25 of the 2010s yes Um, so very excited for that one Uh, i've been watching a lot of movies recently to try to make sure that i'm i'm thorough enough i think i've seen probably i think i've overseen over 560 films from the decade now so i think i I am at least qualified enough to pick a top 25 um not as much as critics you know like critics who see like thousands of movies every decade but you know that's fine um other podcasts on our feed we also have twist among mysteries hosted by brendan where he talks about all things occult and spooky uh go back and listen to those uh episodes we have a few episodes on the feed from that we also coming up soon have the octo island podcast restarting with the star star wars podcast i believe next wednesday after our review of psycho we'll be talking about the duel of the fate script written by colin trevorrow and then a couple weeks later we're going to be starting up our clone wars uh rewatch series which is going to be very fun the series finale is coming out on monday actually when psycho is coming out um so the series finale the clone wars we're going to go back 
review and watch every episode of that series. And uh, am I missing any? I think that's it, right? Yeah, and we can uh, plug our social medias as well. We it. are at Twisted Mug Media on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to contact us through Gmail, it's uh, twistedmugmedia at gmail.com. Uh, please hit us up. Uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, DM us. Email us. Like our posts. Follow us. Uh, yeah, and we are available wherever podcasts are available. Uh, please tell your friends. Spread the word. We uh, come out with quality content all the content? time. It is quantum quality quantum <laughs> that's what we're gonna stick quality with quality quantum about kwai john jin um it, it comes out all the time uh, yes and and going along with that of spreading the news and recommending this podcast to your friends there's an app uh that is available now it's called likewise um all three of us are we are not sponsored by we likewise. are not sponsored <laughs> but uh all three of us are on it we we should be getting brendan on it soon uh if this is your first episode he's he's usually on these and he's on most of our other shows um but I um you can follow me on likewise. Basically, it's just an app that uh, y- you give recommendations on all kinds of things, uh, mainly like movies and TV. Um, and but you can also give recommendations for books, podcasts, restaurants. Um, uh, and you can follow me at let me find my freaking thing. Uh, it's just Logan underscore Emmert, L O G A N underscore E M M E R T. And you guys can get yeah, it. and you can also go follow me on that. It's uh, at Matthew underscore Monroy, M O N R O Y. Yep. So hit us up on that. Yeah, follow me on Letterboxd, fuckers. Um, <laughs> R Floyd seventeen on Letterboxd. Come follow me. Have a good time. Um, so yeah, we'll be back on Monday uh, with Psycho, and uh, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. We're coming towards the end of our Hitchcock series. We only got two more movies left. We got Psycho, and then the Family Plot. So, uh, yeah, we're wrapping up. We're going, we're torpedoing ahead into the 1960s. So, uh, come back and join us on Monday for that. So, we'll talk to you then, guys. See ya. See ya. See ya. You two are lined up as usual. I guess we'll just find out. Perfect. <laughs> this is going to be so fucking stupid. <laughs> I, can't, I can't laugh through it because it's not going to sound right. <laughs> All right, I'm going to try, try it. Just think about unemployment. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Get your shit together, Ryan. <laughs> Stop making me laugh. I'm sweating. Uh, this is all going at the end of the podcast. Yep. Uh, sorry. I'll cut that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope my microphone kicked that up. I tried to I tried to quietly push out a fart and it was quite loud.
I'm gonna I'm gonna take a 20 second pause to go pee quick, but I think that's a good point because I know where I want to go next. But I, I hope am, that I'm also gonna go pee. Are you sure you're I not really gonna? I really hope that my mic hit that up. Are you sure? No, I don't. Ha- I won't. I do have to, but I'm not gonna take 10 minutes to do that. So I'll. I'll you need to clean off your underwear. I'm pretty sure you just shit. <laughs> you just shoot a diarrhea down your leg. Anus. Boys, we're gonna have some quality outtakes on this one. Oh, absolutely. Oh hell yes. <laughs> oh, I was like, when it happened, I was like, shit, Matt's in the middle of a really good point, but I can't not laugh. <laughs> I thought it was something I said. I was like, no, oh, what? no, I was like, ah, I thought I got it out. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna amplify that that half a second of Please. you farting. <laughs> well, so for, I mean, much. you have to mute <laughs> it at the part while Matt is talking. But then you can just amplify yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> I'll put that just at the insert end. Insert it so. in random spots. <laughs> yeah, just at the end of the podcast, just amplify that bit and then have <laughs> us laughing about it. Um, Okay, I'm ready whenever you guys are. I'm ready. Yeah, cool. I'm ready. Dank. Come. <laughs> nice. Love it.